Welcome to Your Money with DeWitt Capital Management, a show about investing, the markets, life, and everything in between. David DeWitt Jr. and Sr. and Scott Frank will share what they've been reading and listening to and what the trends are in the market. All opinions expressed in the show are solely the opinions of Dave, Dave, and Scott or any guest on the show and do not reflect the opinions of DeWitt Capital Management. All content within the podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decision making. I think I'm ready to go. Yeah, well, it's Friday. It's a beautiful day out. It's the nicest day so far of the year, I think. The grass is starting to grow. The yard work is starting to look at me like I need to do something. But uh, here we are. I'm sure a lot of people look in their 401k and probably see a target date fund. And um, they probably just think, oh, that's probably good because that's the amount of time I'm going to be you know, retiring, you know, target date fund 2050. Okay. That's when I'm retiring. Cool. And and I guess we read something that I guess probably we already suspected, but a little more evidence that target date funds are not necessarily the end all and be all of great performance for your retirement. And David, just give a little background. So a target date fund effectively has a year each fund is categorized by a year, and that year corresponds with approximately the date that you would want to retire. And the further away from retirement you are, uh, typically is the, the higher exposure you have to equities or growth investments. And as you get closer towards retirement, the fund gravitates towards a more conservative allocation. Um, yeah, that's correct. Right. right. And some of the most more striking um, tidbits from this article we read um, was that 78% of target date funds are between 50 and 100% invested in their own family of funds. So they're using their, their own funds to, to, to uh, manage these, these sort of baskets of funds, which are the target date funds. Right. And only 10% of them did not invest in their own funds at all. And I personally just suspect that's because they didn't have their, their perfect mix of ones available or something. Well, well th- think about it this way. They, if they stay within their own family of funds and they get all the fees from those funds and they are for the most part actively managed. So it's a, it's a bonanza for the, for the uh, 401k provider. Yeah. And I think, what I what I gather from this is that the younger you are, the less sensitive you are to the performance of your 401k, and you might not even be checking it. So um, you're not really watching it closely because you're not retiring the next five years, and you know it's not top of mind to you. So there was this um, Pension Protection Act, which was passed some uh, some amount of years ago, where um, pension plan sponsors are able to offer the target date fund as the default investment option. So these targeted funds are getting automatic inflows, which means more fees and more money for them. Um, and there's no real pressure on them to necessarily perform because the people that are, a lot of the people that are in these funds are not paying attention. Yeah, I mean, I think it has all the signs of uh, mediocrity and uh, suboptimal outcomes potentially. Um, and I think what's the most interesting is that say the vast majority of people are going to rely upon their 401k retirement plan savings to, to effectively fund their retirement. So 
Um, I'm not sure that this type of, of structure behavior is giving investors the best opportunity for success. Uh, I think it accommodates a lot of fund management firms for sure. Yeah. Um, and it seems to me that it's really just a repackaging of investments to give you the sensation of innovation. Uh, and I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's the case. And these target date yeah. funds are designed to take you through retirement by, you know, as you mentioned earlier, gradually decreasing your investment in stocks and increasing your percentage in bond. <clears throat> Um, but they go on for a while. I mean, they, you could have a target date fund and just hold on to it indefinitely. <clears throat> or until right. you withdrew your money from the 401k plan. Yeah. I mean, I just think that, you know, there's potentially an opportunity for a lot of people to work with someone who really does have their best interest in mind to sort of sort out the 401k and get it properly allocated for you because it does seem like there's some structural things with these target date funds that, you know, make it so that the fund manager can do some things that aren't necessarily in the best interest of the guy with the, in the pension plan. Like for instance, they, they, the authors of this article, it was well done. Um, and it was statistically a statistical study that they did. Uh, I think it was like a sample size of like 4,000 or something funds. Um, they observed that the target date funds would even put some flows into less into, into some of the funds that were actually experiencing outflows, presumably outflows because of a re, for performance or some sort of other reason, but they were doing that to absorb the shock of the outflows. So they're basically putting, you know, your hard, hard-earned 401k savings into adding more into a fund that's getting outflows, which isn't necessarily what you want, but that's the kind of things that they are able to do because they're not being watched all that closely. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, like the mutual fund structure by nature, if you have redemptions, you have to raise cash and sell and sell securities to raise that cash. And so, um, you know, part of part of what you're um, suggesting is that then the funds that may be getting um, outsized flows to make sure that that fund stays within a certain AUM range or doesn't have such a dramatic, call it, um, behavior because of these outflows, then, you know, then they would allocate to, to these types of funds, which I mean, is conflicted, I would say I think it's, into it the best interest quite, of the investor. It you know, seems I think quite conflicted. There, there should be a demand out there from people who have 401ks have somebody really help them to do the allocations because it makes a big difference over time whether or not you're having this thing. I mean, you know, you make your 401k selection, then you forget about it. And, you know, you may wake up 10 years later and say, why, why on earth did I have that allocation? You may have talked to an advisor who said, no, this doesn't make any sense. You've just missed out on a lot of money. Um, here's how you should do it going forward and have somebody help you uh, who's a professional to, to, to allocate in a way that's in your best interest. So it, it's easy to set up the 401k and it's easy to let's let it ride, but who do you have that's, you know, really helping you decide on, you know, how you should invest. It's yeah, the, it's, it's the, it's the I, go ahead. I, I've already spoken. Yeah, just to see, it, it, look, it's, it's the account that probably has the most amount of impact uh, on somebody's ability to retire, yeah. but it seems to me it gets the least amount of attention. In the study, in the study, they found that 
Um, for the average investor who invests in a 401k for 50 years, the, the drag on performance resulting from the behavior of the target date funds reduces the cumulative performance by 20.6%, which is not, which is not nothing. And How much would you say? Cumulative. So it's not annual. That would obviously be like disastrous, but cumulative performance by 20. So that's over 50 years, 20%. So it's not like huge. Well, but 50% it's, but it it's, means the difference between four, 500,000 and 400,000. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a difference. And imagine if you were somehow, imagine if you were just a little bit smarter to took the extra time to make a sense that of having a drag, perhaps maybe you could even have a benefit and go the opposite, you know, have a, not have to suffer the 20%, but maybe you could even do better than, than average. So anyways. It just, it um, just means that you should be talking, people should be talking to someone who could help them oversee it, maybe even once a year, you know, decide on how to allocate. Yeah, instead correct. of just letting it go. Correct. Good article. If that was from Institutional Investor. Yep. So um, we saw another article which we thought was particularly interesting because it's sort of right down our alley. Something that we've been a uh, trend that we've been watching and actually trying to do something about ourselves. And that's the idea of first there was um, mutual funds and then there was index funds and there was direct investing in index funds and then there was etfs and now there's something called custom indexing and i know scott you have some thoughts yeah so uh, the the um i guess the structure of, of custom indexing is is effectively um democratizing ways to screen or filter investments so based upon preferences um you can now take a, a, a broader universe of, of, of investments and then screen it and then come up with a consolidated or a smaller list of things that you could then actually take action on. Um, so, I mean, it's certainly something that, that we've been developing and implementing through a slightly different lens than, than the specific narrative of this story. And I think the growth forces uh, in the space are more control uh, that investors are demanding, you know, the customization of preferences and realizing those preferences. Yeah. And then the compression of fees and or layers yeah. of fees on the advisory business. And, and generally the movement away from the generic passive way of investing that has really, uh, you know, taken hold and, and has had great success over the last, you know, 10 to f 12 or 15 years. And so, um, so I think it's here to stay, um, or at least yeah. there will be a lot of energy towards it. So imagine, so there are, there, there does seem to be an ETF for everyone out there. Mm -hmm. Um, but imagine you're someone who you specifically want just a few, you want five different sort of themes in your portfolio and you can find those ETFs, but you're not really sure how to size them or you're not really sure how to, you're not really sure how you know, how to buy them. You're not really sure about the fees or anything. Instead, you could have with custom indexing, you could say, okay, I want to invest in clean energy and I want to invest in um, robotics and automation and I want to invest in um, precision medicine. Um, how can I do that in a, in, a, in a structured and risk managed way? Well, you could, you could have it, a custom index basically created for you that would rebalance automatically. So, it's, so it'll be it could be individual stocks, for instance, but you're not really picking them, it's still going to be managed on a, on a rules-based or structured way directly 
exactly to your preference and what you want. And the, and the real kicker is that this way, you don't have to pay the ETF fee, which with active funds can often be even close to 1%, but usually in like 0.7%. Um, so you can have something much more customized for perhaps even just stay the same or even maybe lower fee. Yeah. And I think the one thing that people should keep their eyes open for is, is just because you can screen or filter through a preference or, or some type of value you may have or way you want to express something doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to um, bring about improving consistency of, of, of outcomes or investment outcomes, I should say. So I, so I think you need to, you know, you know, if you're going to go this direction, really understand what it is that you're trying to do, right? So you want to express a preference, but is this going to be better for me in the long run? Yeah. So just because, so just because you're offered something custom to you, that's what you want. Doesn't mean that's, that doesn't mean that it's actually best for you. It doesn't mean that, yeah, exactly. It actually helps you in any way other than it just, you, you feel, you feel good that you were able to, to control yeah. or, or customize your preference. Right. Yeah. You know, so, so, so I do think the blending, blending the customization with, with a smart, you know, optimization or a, a smart rules-based way that can actually create more consistency of outcomes and with the ability to also test to make sure that you are potentially comfortable with, yeah. um, with results that look, that were in the past. I think that's the way to go. And I think that will be, that's the secret sauce going for the future. Yes. Yes. I, so I, yeah, I, I think there will be more proliferation of this type of stuff, proliferation of this stuff. Um, and um, it just gives more people op- opportunities or options. Um, but I think, you know, yeah. do your due so, diligence before, you know, you look at these things to make sure that, you know, you really understand what you're getting and it, it is going to potentially uh, improve, um, in, in, you know, improve your outcome or improve, your ability to, to reach your goal effectively. Yeah. So, um, one of the, one of the spaces in the market that, you know, you know, I'm in, we are very interested in is, is a very niche area, which is 3d printing. And, you know, there's not a, there's not a ton of stocks that are pure plays in that. And there's not a ton of stocks that are, um, that are adjacent and connected to the supply chain and connected to the industry of 3d printing which I believe is a, a up and coming industry that's going to be a big deal. But the point is, is there a way to take the companies that do have exposure to 3D printing and create a custom index that exhibits the behavior with some back testing that you're comfortable with going forward because so far it's been a pretty, pretty volatile uh, industry. So is there a way to invest in it and with, on a risk managed approach. And I think that is something that, you know, we were messing with, with our, with our software. Um, and, you know, you know, there is, there's a way to perhaps enable you to get um, uh, more consistent results. But I think it is interesting that this is a, the next phase because I mean, at some point ET, there won't be any stocks left. They'll just be ETFs. I'm, I'm being sarcastic there a little bit, but there's, there's more ETFs and mutual funds out there than there are individual stocks by a wide margin. Yeah, and like, look, in, in defense of also ETFs, and I think at the detriment of mutual funds, I mean, uh, you've seen the ETF business certainly gaining much more sway within the industry. Sure. Also, there are inherent, you know, inherent 
uh, tax advantages um, over funds or potentially how, you know, depends on how you manage managed accounts or, you know, if you're going to express a custom index, you're probably gonna have to hold these individual securities in a, in a separately managed account or an account by itself, you know, how you manage that rebalance and how often you turn over that portfolio affects the tax too, right? So again, yeah. it's not as straightforward as saying, oh, this is the best. It's okay. We like the idea of customization. Okay. Then what else do we apply upon this to make sure that we're we're running this in a sensible way that we can achieve our goal? And then, you know, always have to look at other, you know, implications like fees and taxes to really understand is this, is this going to get us to where we want to go the most efficiently? Uh, rather than just diving after stuff because it sounds good. Again, this is slightly a repackaging play like target funds, right? It, it sounds really interesting and it sounds really cool, but I think you have to dig a little bit deeper to really understand what am I getting into? It doesn't make sense for me. I think the worst thing a, a somebody could do, the biggest uh, problem they could run into would be buy into a regular actively managed mutual fund and then watch the market decline and have investors take money out of that fund because what you're going to wind up with is capital gains while you're losing money. It's the worst possible scenario. And I've seen it happen many times over the years. Yeah, so I mean, as the saying goes, structure matters. Yeah. So I think this looks like a you know great structure to control certainly taxes. And um, yeah, I mean, we um, we shall we shall see, but um, it's certainly something to keep on the radar, and you know, um, it's another option for investors. Yes, for sure. Um, an interesting fact: over the past twenty-five years, stock correlations have materially increased, and uh, the culprit, in my mind, has got to be this, a lot of it is passive investing. And um, so, yeah, so Scott, what, what have you seen? Yeah, I mean, you know, just if you, if you look at um, kind of historical context the last 25 years, you can kind of see it in a number of different, um, in different, number of different ways. So if you look at kind of the average correlation of stocks within, say, the S&P, I think you've, I mean, obviously they, they, they oscillate, but uh, but I think if you kind of look from point to point, so if you look, you know, from the nineties to, to where we are today. So nineties, so it's this, so nineties, it looks like uh, correlations um, in the low uh, point ones between point one and point two before moving higher into, into yeah. 2000. Yeah. If, I mean, if you look at kind of like, you know, a couple, I mean, you know, I think the data that you're that you're referencing is a couple years old, but you can kind of see that it's been a steady kind of trend up. Yeah. Right. So classic uptrend. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, so the whole point of that is, you know, cor correlation is co-movement. So how do a couple, you know, how do variables, how do say two objects move in the same direction? Um, and so um, that can be good and bad, um, particularly bad on the downside. Um, so, so what you're kind of seeing is this phenomenon based upon, as, as you mentioned, um, with more and more people piling into, into passive style investing, things are, you know, behaviorally are, are starting to show this. So, um, that's something where it's going to, 
I think, um, force people to, to really think about their allocations and go back to the, the previous topic we were discussing is custom ind- indexing. And I think that's where you see greater interest is to how can you exploit or how do you find more non-correlation? So when you have periods of stress, the entire portfolio or the, or the entire you know, allocation of stocks are not going in the same way. And I think you also see this. So what you mentioned, Davey, was, was kind of individual stocks amongst the S&P. Um, if you take a look at, say, the correlations of large cap companies and then small cap companies um, or developed market companies and emerging market companies, you see the same or a similar phenomenon where uh, if you go back 20, 25 years, those correlations were, you know, were quite, quite a bit different than they are today, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so what you're kind of seeing is, you know, within an index and then within broader markets, you're starting to see um, with the index size indexation, I guess would be the word indexation of, 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 I would go with that word indexation of the, of the business of the market. These correlations are, are becoming more strong and more dependent upon each other. So I think, you know, um, that's something that from a risk management perspective needs to be um, considered and and looked at as you're building your allocation. An interesting sort of observation from the, uh, the chart is that it seems like the correlation amongst each other increases generally speaking in bull markets leading up to a bear market and then they seem to go down so from 96 to 99 higher in the early 2000s not necessarily a big bull market but lower and then sort of early higher. 2000s was definitely a, a bear market yeah uh and that's when um so i mean it's just a general observation there yeah and also like there's this whole notion of like what we call dispersion so correlation is like the co-movement of 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 variables moving together and then dispersion is like the magnitude at which they do so so in in the early 2000s um you had slightly lower correlations but then you had more dispersion so that means there was more places to hide if if trouble was coming when when correlations are tight or high and dispersions are high there's less place to hide and effectively, you know, everything kind of sinks. So, you know, the preference would be in markets where you have a bit more dispersion uh, or if you can build a system or some type of process or philosophy where you're exploiting correlation dispersion, um, you know, you can, you can then, um, you know, exploit a more natural defense system. Yeah. When correlations are really tight and everything seems to move in the same direction, it, when, when finding, um, baskets of diversification of true diversification where correlations are not so high might be beyond the uh, ability of the human eye. So yeah, some technology can definitely help there. And being the old guy here, I, I've been I've watched this in action a number of times because I remember '99 and early 2000, all that whole period. You know, the technology stocks and internet stocks were just flying through the roof, and things like energy infrastructure stocks were just going lower and lower. And then 2000 hit and, you know, the NASDAQ ultimately went from 5,280 to in the 700s over the next couple of years. And, 
the energy infrastructure stocks like doubled. So there was great dispersion. I'm just giving you one example. There could be many, many others. But at that point, there was a lot of dispersion between various parts of the market. Yes. I think even, Scott, sometimes in some of the things that you've done, you've shown that um, through stock selection, you could have survived that whole period that really wiped out a lot of people. Yeah. And, and now you kind of, you get the idea as why, if you go back to that time frame where, you know, you could protect, protect a bit better is because you had much larger dispersions than you yeah. did in say, Oh wait. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. You know, so, you know, you gotta, you gotta like keep an eye on both things. Right. So, you know, are, are, are they, are they collapsing? Are they, you know, are they expanding? And then, um, to what magnitude are they doing so? So that way you can get a real sense as to how to, you know, how to. Well, there's been dispersion between value and growth, and you know, for a long time, value being bad and growth being good. I, you know, I guess if you have both, you're protected or better protected. Yeah, I mean, but the whole point is is they're cyclical, uh, they oscillate, and they, um, you know they move over time. So there will be times when they're wider. There will be times when they're tighter. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, um, but to Davey's point, um, you, you know, until you dig into the data and somehow plot this stuff, it's very difficult to assess it. Yeah. And we're certainly seeing um, the cyclical nature of growth and value over the past couple over over the past month or so, where we've seen the, the growthiest of the growth take a real beating and, the value, the most, the most value, the deepest value out there has really risen quite a lot. I mean, I think bank stocks have gone up like 100% in like four months and they did nothing for years. Um, so one interesting thing is that these cycles happen and a lot of times they go quick. Um, they happen quickly and when the moves actually happen, they move quick. I think the saying is like, Stocks go sideways for 90% of the time and they're actually making moves 10% of the time, which just basically basically means stay invested because how do you know when those 10% of the time is going to be? Yeah. Um, There's some stats around that. We should do it for a future cast where, you know, if you miss the, the, the 10 most profitable trading days in any one year over 10 or 20 years or 30 years, the difference of your return profile is miles different. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll have to find that the way that we can run. Obviously, that's, that's that's never really going to happen, but it just shows you. I mean, if that did happen, then you have the worst luck of any human being that ever existed. Yes. You actually miss those days. But but what if you miss some of those days and we're also in some of the worst days? It could get even worse. So, um, so yeah, but we'll, yeah, that, that'll be a good one for a future podcast. Um, did you guys read the, uh, the piece on the electric vehicles? I did. And I thought it was very, very interesting. Yeah. Some of the, you know, we've seen people throw out some ludicrous stats about what the EV market has been doing for the past year, but some of these ones are really good. Um, like for instance, the combined value of the EV specialists, in the universe of research and affiliates, which is where we got this research from, uh, is one trillion as of January thirty first, two thousand twenty one, 
which is almost as on par with the traditional automakers at 1.1 trillion. And pro they're probably producing one, I don't know for sure, I don't know at all, but a fraction of the amount of cars that that uh, the traditional automakers are making. Well, let, let me see if I get this you straight. You're saying that the combined market value of the EV startups and, and existing companies is 1.1 trillion, and the value of all the other car manufacturers is one trillion. Yeah, and 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 seventy five percent of the total EV group is Tesla. Yeah, um, Tesla's in, Tesla, so, yeah, seventy five percent. Right. So, and so I think one of one of the the as I read through this, the one quote that hit home for me the most, I couldn't have said any better. And they're talking about the fact that Tesla is seventy five percent of the EV market share right now, and thirty five percent of the entire vehicle market share or market cap, not market share, obviously not market share of vehicles sold, but they write. Such an achievement requires that both Tesla's brand and technology become so dominant that the company can earn profit margins that exceed those of Ferrari on a level of production exceeding that of Toyota. <laughs> that's, a, that's a puzzle that probably can't be solved. Um, and that assumes that they will be literally the only, pretty much literally the only electric car vehicle company making electric cars and selling them. What I found interesting is the um, the idea that ultimately you're still making cars. All you're doing is changing the propulsion system. So you're going to go from an internal combustion engine to an electric engine. And it doesn't mean you're going to sell more cars. It just means that the propulsion system changes. And why would that make... Um, and the car companies are still going to be competing with each other. They're not going to stop competing. They're all going to have electric cars. They're all going to be competing with each other. So the fundamental profitability of the whole industry probably won't change a whole lot. And yet you've got these insane valuations. Um, and I, you, it, you know, who knows how long that continues, but you know, what I remember like in the, in the cell phone industry is that it, originally there was, they mentioned the Palm Pilot, which was the thing that everybody had to have. Then it was the BlackBerry and that just eliminated uh, the Palm Pilot in, out of existence. And then after BlackBerry, which everybody had to have, which was the hot thing, then came the iPhone and that wiped out the, the BlackBerry. So, you know, I wonder who's going to knock out the iPhone, but um you know, these things will cannibalize each other. And over time, I mean, I, if you're owning these stocks now and they're running, God bless you. But just for the long run, keep an eye on it. Yeah, me personally, I I would feel way more comfortable in a, a one of the traditional vehicle makers that is trading, you know, at or below book value that is seriously investing in electric vehicles. I feel like that's just maybe the more logical way to play it rather than you know, a Tesla, but that's just for me. Um, well, what you know, it's for me is I look at the Mustang Mach, whatever electric vehicle they're coming out with, which looks like it's a, it's going to be a real competitor of Tesla. I mean, it's, yeah. it's going to be an SUV. It's going to look like a Mustang. It's going to go from zero to 60 in three seconds or some crazy thing like that. It's going to have a range. I don't know what it is, maybe 300 uh, or 250. I mean, wait till Tesla starts having to, you know, pony up against, the likes of Ford and General Motors and the, all the other companies, Volkswagen. We'll see. I, 
Yeah, know? we'll see. I mean, you know, not going to make any specific stock calls, obviously, but. Yeah, let's see. Have you driven a Ford lately? What's that? You know the commercial, have you driven a Ford lately? I haven't seen that one. Back in the, the 80s. 80s. Back in the 80s. <laughs> when I was See, a that's kid. That's why it's good to have a millennial and a baby boomer and, and somebody in between. What, what are you, Scott? You're not a millennial. You're what, Gen Xer? Like I'm on the cusp of X millennial. Yeah. How does it feel to be caught in the middle there? I don't know the difference, I don't think. <laughs> it feels the same. Well, I mean, uh, my only point was, let's see, uh, you know, we, I think we discussed this before, this notion of something they're trying to develop. I think it's, is it Exxon and Porsche e-fuel? So you can, still run, you can I, don't, I don't know, but it's something where you can still run internal combustion hmm. with a synthetic fuel that has like 80% less of the byproduct. So, so, you know, is, is that, you know, cause if you look at like, you know, how you charge these things, you're using fossil fuels and, you know, um, you know, what are the long-term implications of this type of thing? Um, and maybe just refining how you power traditional cars is, um, a more logical step. I don't know. I mean, they're but, still trying to figure out hydrogen. There you go. I, I think it, it's some, it's somehow some type of derivative or, processing you know to you know with that um but it, it sounds super interesting yeah so we'll have to see how that all plays out um it's pretty it's pretty wild though you know just the the sheer magnitude of the ev market cap and tesla's market cap it's just it, it boggles the mind the it boggles the mind for sure it sure does um okay moving on we can just touch quickly on this. Another, um, you know, Bitcoin's been all the rage and I still I find it fascinating how it is seriously terrible for the environment, the amount of energy it uses. And um, it seems to be sort of ignored. It's starting to be talked about more and more, but I mean, a lot of people that I would think care about the environment are loving their Bitcoin. So, you have to kind of square that in your head if you're going to be cool with owning a lot of Bitcoin. You're also perpetuating, you know, a lot of energy usage that's bad for the environment. And the question is, is there a, in my mind, the question is, is there a true intrinsic benefit to the world of Bitcoin? Is is, is it is its existence going to truly uh, make the world a better place? Or is this just like completely unnecessary? I think that'll be a question we'll be uh, asking for a while. But what, what, what struck me from this article was just how much energy it takes to run computers that spit out random numbers to mine Bitcoin. And I can't remember, but I think, they, I, think I read another article that said that the, large, the biggest place on the planet where they do the most data mining for Bitcoin is in a part of China where the only electrical generation is from coal. So they're burning coal to find Bitcoin. I, it does sound crazy. Yeah, I mean, um, according to this article from uh, Keaton Joshi, um, the upper 
Bitcoin bound of energy consumption is, all right, what is TWH? What does that stand for? It's 439 something. Tera, tera something. Large, large um, unit wow. of measurement for uh, energy consumption. And the annual uh, energy consumption from Google is 10. So it's nearly 50 times more using 50 times more energy than the entire enterprise of Google, which has so, data centers around the world. And, and they're the most, one of the most data intensive uh, companies that exists. Um, so I think, I think our conclusion is that. Uh, let's see how this plays out. Um, I think it's a risk for sure um, for Bitcoin. And it, it, I think it makes an excuse for central banks around the world to uh, brush it off as not beneficial in much of any way, potentially. I don't know. Though it is becoming so wrapped into so many things now that it seems like it's here to stay. But, you know, to what extent is it going to, you know, uh, grow into intertwined with the economy? It may be as real as tulip bulbs were in Holland in the 1600s down the road who would have thought that a tulip bulb could be worth the price of your house and there are i don't know where to come down on this side on this because um bitcoin is who would have thought that one bitcoin which is a piece of encrypted code could be worth I don't even know if that's the right way of saying what it is. That is the right way of saying okay. it. Exactly it could be worth fifty thousand uh, dollars. It's crazy. It's crazy. Well, anyway, I think we have another topic that we could run into here. That's sure, been the us, talk. That's been the. What's that? Sure, go for it. The uh, topic is uh, SPACs, and you know I watch CNBC and I watch the news, financial news, and all I hear is about SPACs. So I decided I would learn what a SPAC is. And a SPAC is a special purpose acquisition company and it goes public as cash. It's a company that just all it is is cash. So it gets the IPO done without having any due diligence on what the company's operations are or anything like that. Yeah. And now you got a publicly traded pile of cash has the name. And it always trade it always trades at $10. They always they always trade at $10. They're the $10 like, specials. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so this, so that's what it is. You know, you hear about it on TV all the time, and I didn't know what it was. So it's a special purpose acquisition company. It goes public just as cash, and then after that, then the sponsors buy a business, invest in a business, and it becomes a publicly that private company now becomes a publicly traded company, and that's how that works. And it's there's so what's, very, the, I what's, mean, what's the point? What's the point of doing a spec and reg, rather than a regular IPO? The, the point would be you can get it on the market without having to do all the IPO uh, due diligence, which is huge to get a, an IPO across the finish line. Um, you, have, you, know, you got to do roadshows, you got to have a you know, long perspectives, offering document, and et cetera. But if all you're doing is bring the uh, market uh, an investment that's just, com- just composed of cash, you skip all that. And, you know, I wasn't even aware that you know, this was a way to go forward until it became a big deal. Um, how many, how many this year is it like, it's, I think but, already, already this year alone, there's been almost as many as last year in total. It's like 200 something. 
I think we've already, I think in the first, it's not even three months. The first three months of this year have already exceeded everything that had been done last year. So and last year was also a huge amount as well. Yeah. So it's absolutely blowing up. I mean, it's crazy. We're in this market where there's so many, there's so many pockets of crazy speculation. Um, I mean, some you know, of these NFTs. Some, what's an NFT? Uh, I mean, we're talking about how, you know, someone was able to sell their, um, <laughs> their uh what do you what do you want to call it their uh let's their not talk about that particular thing fart in a jar yeah. for 85 bucks yeah 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 the 85 dollar fart in a jar yeah yeah i don't think we were going to talk about that but somebody's sold a fart in a jar hermetically sealed for 85 bucks now well i mean i mean they're talking on cnbc someone's selling someone's selling their tiktok video for five hundred thousand dollars, and they were talking about it as a headline topic on cnbc so where where are we right now in the market I don't know. I guess there's a lot of stimulus money flying around out there. It has to find a place. But uh, so the thing about SPACs that kind of concerns me is, and, uh, is that there are so many of them coming, creating newly publicly traded companies that you've increased the number of stocks on the market, maybe by a fairly dramatic amount, which would then put pressure because, you know, you, you've got more stocks, uh, but you, the, the amount to be invested is, you know, still the same amount. So it makes every other stock, every stock worth less because you just got so many to choose from. So it it could have, it could, I'm not sure it will, but it possibly could have a negative effect on the overall market. And it also creates a lot of um, risk for investors to understand what it is they're investing in because yes. there's, it's, you get, I mean, because you, what you might be investing is, you may have no idea ultimately what you own. Yeah, I would hope that someone who buys a SPAC pre-merger has a really good idea of what they're buying and have a good understanding of, you know, of all of that because it is a little murkier for sure. Yeah, record amounts of capital being raised, you know, limited coverage of research. You can avoid a lot of the filing requirements of IPOs. What could go wrong? <laughs> I mean, it just seems to me, you know, if you just kind of want to focus on this pod, nearly every subject is some type of new, new idea or call it, you know, an emerging trend or a new way to monetize something. You know, I mean, that these are observations that shouldn't be ignored. I mean, you know, you're you're trying to repackage things or you're trying to monetize new things. Um you know, the market's looking for the new, new thing, or it's trying to find a way to continue to compound at the rate we've seen in the last 10 or 15 years. So it seems like the last crisis, all we've done is invent new things to, to invest in. And I think they come about so fast. A lot of people just ignore, um, ignore you know what they should be doing in, in from a research or due diligence perspective but also some of these things just don't have ample data points to really assess yeah and if so, you do it right from my perspective i'll just I'll, I'll i prefer to watch from the sidelines and let's see what um let's see what you know what what happens after the dust settles i mean if you do a regular yes. ipo you're going to be looked at and, and uh, by lawyers and by the investment firm and and your, your, your offering documents have to be spick and span. 
but a spec it's just different it's not yeah i mean like look i'm you know not, not to say that like you know um yeah, you know, just because you go IPO doesn't mean it's always a fruitful endeavor for well, that's all true. those invited, but or or invested. But what I would say is, it's like you know, it's a general rule of thumb. If everybody's running towards one direction because it's the hottest thing, um, you know, I would just um, Fred probably running into the fire. Yeah, I mean, you know, just just be careful what you're doing, and um, and try to understand as much as you can. Um, you know, everything that's involved and, uh, and always think, you know, where, you know, what am I not looking at? Where, where could we really have, of, you know, where could we really mess this up or, you know, what could be, you know, um, what could be something that, you know, we could look really foolish by going into this so quickly. Right. Um, and I think, you know, you'll, you'll stay out of too much trouble. I think that sounds like good yeah. advice. How, how, you know, yeah, exactly. Like, where are the potential nasty surprises? I mean, and some of them are unknown, but yeah, you may you know, have just, no idea. Just, just look at are. historical perspective, and you'll see that, you know, when when markets get a bit heated, you'll you'll find all kinds of issuance of new things, a new way right. to express something, a new way to invest in something, and really, it's just a repackaging of something that already exists or stuff that you know really doesn't deserve that capital, but gets it anyway. And then at the end of the day, few do well, many do poorly. So. Right. Yeah. In a, in a research from Goldman Sachs, they laid out what are nine common characteristics of a bubble. And by the way, just to get to the conclusion, Goldman says, yes, there are pockets of excessive valuations, but it is not remotely close to a full-blown bubble. So with that in mind, some of these strike me as like obvious check marks, like um, new valuation approaches justified. I don't have any in mind, but I'm sure there's analysts out there that are just throwing out price to earnings and using price to sales, you know, figuring out, you know, trying to make their models work because they don't really work if, if it was how things were valued um, just a few years ago. And then another one is easy credit, low rates and rising leverage. That's the check. Um, new era narrative and technology innovations. Now that's a big check. That's just like ARC and all these SPACs, all these new ideas. I mean, that is blatantly happening Look, think, it, in the market. Yeah, and it, and it doesn't, it, even if valuation is in check or standard metrics, it, all it takes is a certain portion of the market or a segment that gets some type of panic, you know, or there's forced selling or people are running from something and there's knock on effects of the broader market. Right. So it doesn't have yeah, to be sure. the overall structure of the market that is looking weak. It could just be a certain segment or a certain place where it's just, there's just too much money flowing towards something that, you know, it doesn't really add much value or going to pan out. And all of a sudden that seeps into other areas of the market where, you know, where, you know, you're going to feel it. So, um, you know, it's, um, it's not always the obvious and it, I guess it rarely ever is. It's always something you're not looking at that, um, can be a culprit. You don't yeah. know what you don't know. That's the problem. Yeah. Right. Because everybody's looking at the obvious things that caused the last two or three recessions, but you know, look at, there's so much stuff coming online and so many different ways to express something. I mean, I don't think we've seen it before. What could potentially Right. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just 
So, so the point is be cautious. Stay cautious. Be cautious. There are there are signs. Um, this one, number four, frantic speculation and investor flows. I mean, is 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 twenty three billion into one fun family in three months? Frantic speculation. <laughs> I don't know. Could be. Could not be. Um, so we shall see. We, we shall, shall see. see. We all right. See. That's all we got. That's all we Thank got for today. All right. Money. <laughs> okay. All right. Bye. So long. Thanks for listening. If you want a question highlighted on the show or have any comments or feedback, shoot us an email at yourmoneydoit at gmail.com. See you on the next one.